when will Jesus return? This question has plagued Christians from the beginning. You guys remember the disciples would bug Jesus about it. So when, like, when are you coming back? When are you doing this thing? And Jesus would, would always deflect the question, explain that you, you can't know that. It's not for you to know that. At one point he said, it's not even for me to know that. It's the Father's. That question preceded the disciples. You read through the Old Testament. How long, O Lord, till the day of the Lord? They didn't have a quite the concept of Jesus coming first to be a suffering servant and then later to be a conquering king. But they just had this idea of the day of the Lord when God is going to send the Messiah to wrap everything up. When is it? When? When is it? Uh, when we were driving to Colorado, uh, this 15-hour drive, I put a ban on when questions. No when questions. When are we stopping? When are we getting there? What, when is it going to be? What time? What time, Dad? Dad, what time? I'm like, do you have a date? What, do you have an appointment scheduled that I don't know about? Stop it. I could tell, you know, even, even Tina, you know, she's navigating. She just wants to make sure that we're not behind on schedule. I'm like, hon, don't worry about schedule. Let's, it's vacation. We don't have to be somewhere. That's the whole point. We don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. Let's just be released and freed from the tyranny of schedule and appointments and time. And then I would sneak a peek at the clock and do the math in my head. Because I want to know what time we're getting there. <laughs> Sick of driving. So we want to know when. We're like the little kids in the back of a car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And what the Bible constantly teaches is not the when of Christ's return, but the how. How Christ's return should be our question. The thing that we are concerned about is how Jesus comes back, not when Jesus comes back. Jesus made that clear when he taught the disciples. And then Paul makes that clear when he writes the Thessalonian church because they're plagued with the same question. He knows this because if you'll remember, he sent Timothy to go check out this church. What's up with this church? Are they going to die? I know there's persecution. I know that everyone around them, they're, they're worshiping Rome. Rome gave them this protection, and they feel real good about themselves. But the Christians... The Christians are messing all that up. And so there's persecution. Is this church going to survive? Paul writes the church after getting a report from Timothy. Timothy's report was like, hey, they're a good church, a great church, but they have a couple problems. There's a couple things burdening them. And one of the things burdening this small, fledgling church in this huge city is the question of Christ's return. They want to know when. And they have other questions circling around that, I'm sure. So Paul responds to kind of ease their burden to kind of relieve that burden from them and give them uh, what they're supposed to focus on. And what they're supposed to focus on is how Christ returns. And when we look at how Christ returns, we're going to see that the day of the Lord will not be an encouragement to everyone. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You flip through the New Testament and you start getting toward the back. You hit the T's. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. We're in the first one, 1 Thessalonians. All right, so chapter 5 of Paul, Paul's letter hoping that this church would be a weatherproof church, a surviving church, and he knows if they're going to survive, they need to stop being killed by this one question and instead switch it to the how question. He starts it like this, verse 1. 
Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now notice what he does not say is concerning the times and the seasons, you don't need anything written to you because I already told you the time and the season. That's not what he says. What he's saying is concerning the times and the seasons, you don't need anyone to write to you because you already know that's the wrong question. It's not about times and seasons. It's not about the date. We're not going to try to pull out the newspaper, do some cryptic Dan Brown kind of Da Vinci Code math on it, and then figure out that he's coming some month in 2017, and then we're all going to go to some mountain, preferably Colorado, and, and then hide there, you know, for a while till Jesus gets back and escape from the world. We're not doing that. But sadly, churches do that, don't they? They, they try to pinpoint, it's amazing how authors are still coming out with books, and radio pastor personalities are still coming out with announcements, giving dates as to when Christ is going to return, when it's clear over and over again. Concerning the seasons and the times, you already know better. It's not about when, it's about how. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come how, not when. What's it going to be like? Well, it's going to be like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You know, I look at this and, uh, you know, a thief, it could just be breaking and entering, right? I don't mean just like if it's not devastating. You walk in and then something doesn't feel right and you realize the TV's gone and then you realize the, your iPods are missing and your jewelry box is open and everything's, it's devastating. But I think that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. I, 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 I'm not trying to get in Paul's mind because I can't, but I think what Paul has in mind is a little bit more like Luke 10. You remember the robbers that robbed the dude that was traveling and then the Good Samaritan was the only one that helped the guy? He was robbed, but what else was he? He was beaten, stripped, and left for dead. And so a robbery is not always, you know, the guy that just sneaks in, the teenager that's just looking for drug money or something, and he just sneaks in and sneaks out, but there's violence. And I'm not just using sanctified imagination because that's what he says. The thief comes to do what? Destroy. What's going to fall upon them? The loss of things? No. The destruction of them. It's not just breaking and entering. Like Jesus is going to come and sneak his, his believers away and, and pretend like it didn't exist. No, they're going to know it. And it's going to be destruction to them. Jesus comes like a thief in the night. It's about how Jesus comes. And Jesus doesn't come like the Jesus that people who hate Christians think Jesus is. Let me back that up and explain. We have this idea, and it's true, that people, they like Jesus, they just don't like the church. You've heard this. I, like, I got no problem with Jesus. I just have a problem with his followers. Well, if you read the Bible and understood the real Jesus, you'd hate him. Because the Jesus that you love when you say that you hate his church is a Jesus that you've painted yourself. The Jesus that doesn't have a problem with anybody's sins. The Jesus that walks around and just says, don't worry about it, nobody's going to cast stones. Nobody casts stones, that's not what he said. Jesus very much has a problem with sin. Jesus very much has a problem with wickedness. And the one that's going to come back and kick the teeth in on wickedness is Christ. The one that rides the pale horse, the one with the tattooed thigh, sword coming out of his mouth is Jesus. 
And Jesus said, I didn't t- come to bring peace. Then he tells his disciples, I didn't, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. A sword divides. Now in this world, we've got two kinds of people. Just two. Jesus' sword divides the whole, whole world into two camps. Those that are ready for his return and those that are not ready for his return. And the ones that are not ready for his return, he doesn't come and give them a cuddle and a tear in his eye and say goodbye. I wish we could have been together. He comes with destruction. So the world that claims to like Jesus but not like his followers, they have no clue who Jesus is. I mean, they should like him. They should love him. Because he's not just the conquering king, he's the suffering servant. He makes a way to follow him. But if they understood that he draws a line in the sand with that sword, if you're on the wrong side of this line, you're dead. That's Jesus. He's not the good cop and the father's the bad cop. Jesus comes to deliver judgment and destruction. And it's going to come like a thief. He's not going to come waving a flag, blaring his horn. He's not going to come, I'm about to come now. I'm about to come. I'm coming in now. Be ready for me. I'm entering. I'm opening the handle. That's not what a thief does, right? It's just, bam, you're in the middle of your election, and you think you got the whole world figured out because your man is in, in the office, and bam, Jesus comes. He's the man in the office because it's, it's his timeline. It's his world. He's sovereign. And he's going to interrupt people's sleep while they're soundly saying things like there's peace and security. This town in Thessalonica, you remember the reasons why they hated Christians so much? Was because the rise of Christians threatened their protection by Rome. Rome said, we're going to give you, let you have, do whatever you want, Thessalonica. You're a big city. You've got a harbor. You've got a lot of commerce and trade going on. We like you guys. But just make sure you keep Caesar worship central. And you can worship all your other stuff. Just make sure you keep Caesar central, worship central. And then we're going to give you guys slack so you can do whatever you want. Well, Christians were the only group that were saying, well, we can't worship not just the other gods that Thessalonians worship. We can't worship Caesar either because we can't put Jesus next to anybody. It's Jesus' worship only. Jesus demands exclusive worship. And so the, the rest of the Thessalonians are thinking, Man, if this Christianity thing gets popular enough, popular enough to reach Rome's ears, Rome is going to come in here and go, what? Worship who? You're not going to worship us? And take away all of our protection. The barbarians are going to swoop in and take us over, man. So they were scared of that. They were, loved their peace and security. And Paul is kind of poking fun. You know, they're going to keep saying peace and security until the moment Jesus kicks the door in like a thief. What will it be like? It will be like a thief in the middle of the night. It will be like people saying peace and security and then sudden destruction comes upon them. It will be like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now there's a a lot of analogies to draw between labor pains, but let's just stick with what Paul is saying. Labor pains can come on suddenly. Jesus is going to come back suddenly. Entering into labor is painful. Jesus' return is going to be painful. Once a woman starts entering labor, she can go, oh, never mind, and then turn it off. <laughs> Meaning it is inescapable. And you've got to think, back then, they didn't have a lot of the things that we have today. They didn't have epidurals. They didn't have oxytocin. They didn't have a doula, a nurse, three doctors, you know, a nice room to yourself, put the TV on, 
nice bed with the automatic stuff, you might die because you don't have all that stuff. I'm minimizing the pain of labor today. I want you to see the maximal pain that they experience without those things. And so in this context, Paul is talking about the pain, the inescapable pain that suddenly comes on with labor. That's what it's going to be like when Christ returns. They're going to be talking about peace. They're going to be talking about security, but they're going to quickly find out that they don't actually have peace. And they don't have security. So Christ's return is not a comfort to everyone. It's scary. But to that second camp, it's the opposite. To the second camp, the camp of the people that are ready for his return, it's a comfort. For us, the thief is a good thief. For us, that thief is a rescuer. He doesn't come to steal goods. He comes to take his people. We just saw that at the end of chapter 4. He's going to take everyone that's already died. They're going to be changed. And then everyone that hasn't died yet, but is a Christian, they're on his side of the dividing sword. They're going to be raised up, caught up with him, and changed as well and be united to him. So it's not that it's scary for some people and it's just not very scary for others. It's scary for some and come the complete opposite to others. To one camp, Jesus is the villain. I hope you understand as read, by reading through Scripture that there's not going to come a time when everyone is going to be on the other side of Christ, separated from him, under his judgment, and go, Oh, Jesus, I just wish I could hug you. I wish I knew. They're going to hate him forever. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth is not weeping like, oh, I wish I was with Jesus. And they're not gnashing their teeth because they're just in pain. The the phrase gnashing of teeth is toward somebody. He gnashed his teeth toward him. Like when you would say you rolled your eyes at somebody. It's hatred toward somebody. Who do they hate? Forever. Who do they hate? Jesus. They hate him now. They'll hate him then. But for the other camp, he's not a villain. He's the hero. He's the rescuer. And he comes in, not as a thief, because we're not the ones sleeping. We're not in darkness. Look look what he says. He draws a contrast between these two camps. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. There's the two camps. You have children of the day, children of the night. People that are asleep, people that are awake, people that walk in darkness, people that walk in light, people that are not ready for his return, people that are ready for his return. And while his return is scary for the first group, the second group, children of light, it's not scary, it's a comfort. It's rescue. And so he wants to encourage them. Don't be worried about when. Just be worried about how. And be glad that you're on the right side of how. That when he comes like a thief, He comes as a rescuer to you. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. And he explains what we're like. He says, so then, he gives us an exhortation. Let us not sleep as others do. Don't be like the ones that are like, oh, peace and security, peace and security. Totally oblivious to Christ's return. Don't be oblivious. You're not oblivious. You're with him. You know he's returning. So then let us not sleep as others do, verse 6, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let us keep awake 
Let us be sober. Now, when we're awake, we do our best work, right? When you're half asleep, you might be trying to bang through it and just try to finish the job, whatever you're working on, but it's not going to be as good as when you're fully awake, you know? Uh, this is why you, many of you, you, you make sure you get your coffee before you, you start your day because you want to start the day, not kind of stumble into the day three hours into your work day, right? You want to start, and you want to be awake to do it. The opposite of that would be if you were drunk. You're awake, but because of what you've been intoxicating yourself with, you might as well be half asleep or worse. But what is Paul saying? Those that are ready for Christ's return live like they're ready. We're not just half asleep. We're not just kind of sort of doing Christianity. We're all in on Christianity because we realize this is everything. And when our master comes back as a thief to others, he comes as a rescuer to those who've been following him. Not just concerned with when he's going to come, but rather than worrying about when, just being in the now, living the way he wants us to be now. Because when he comes, we're with him. So we're supposed to be living our lives alert and ready, not, so, uh, not drunk, but sober, not asleep, but awake. Verse 7, for those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk, they're drunk at night. These are people that aren't ready. They're busying themselves with stuff of the world. They're intoxicating themselves with things that help them to ignore the fact that the world is coming to an end. Ignore the fact that they were born into meaninglessness because they don't believe God. They just came from matter plus chance, right? They ignore the fact that life is meaningless because death is meaningless. They just ignore it and just trying to intoxicate themselves with joy and pleasure and fun. He's like, you guys aren't like that. You guys know what's up. You guys know what reality is and what you're ready for in Christ's return. So he draws this distinction and he basically tells them, these two groups don't just have two different destinations but because they have the two different destinations, they have two different lives. Their lives look differently. One guy is walking around drunk. The other guy is alert and ready and working. There's two very different dudes, right, in that picture. He's saying that's what your life is supposed to look like because of the difference in destination. Look at verses 7 and 8. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. You guys are different because you're saved. You're different because they don't believe, but you have faith. They don't really love. They don't, they don't really love. They actually operate out of selfishness. If you ask an atheist, what is the, the, more, what is the basis foundation for his morality? Why should he do something for others? You know what their answer is? Because it's survival of the fittest. I need to do nice things to others because I need other people to do nice things to me because if they don't, then I don't survive. That's selfish. Christians are the ones that understand love, that it's not about self, it's about other. So they don't have hope, they don't have faith, they don't have love, and they don't have hope. We put on a helmet of hope for salvation, but they can't hope in the day of the Lord. Their only hope is that the day of the Lord isn't true. But it is true. We know that, and it is a hope for us. But it's not a hope for them, it's destruction for them. And so that difference of destination causes a difference of life. Our lives are different. The way we view things are different. And so when they look at, when they think about the idea of an apocalypse or the return of the Lord, 
if it were to be true. They should fear that. But not us. We should hope for that. When they see movies, remember, I think it was the 90s, every other movie was about one way that the world is going to end. A meteor hits it, an asteroid hits it, or the asteroid hits the water, and then the wave that the, it causes, that destroys everything. Aliens kill us. Lava comes up from the core of the earth and kills us. Oops, New York was built on a volcano. It erupts. That kills us. Every other movie was how we're all going to die. Now, I don't know how you continue watching movies like that, producing movies like that, with the bleak outlook that there is no God, there is no purpose, it's all just meaninglessness. As a Christian, we go, man, it might be lava, it might be water, it might be storms, it might be wars. We don't know how we're going to, our lives are going to end. But we have hope. Because we know at the very end, we don't know exactly when, we don't know all the details, but we know what we're supposed to know. We know what we need to know. Christ is the judge. And he will not unleash his wrath on his own people. So it's a comfort to us. It's a hope to us. When they think of death, they see death as loss. When we think of death, we see death as gain. I mean, that, that's everything. You live your life with your clock ticking down toward death. You don't know when death is, but you know death is coming. That's either completely debilitatingly depressing, or, you know, it's sad because you're going to miss your loved ones, but to die is gain because you have Christ. <laughs> that's, why, that's why the cross, the message of the gospel, is complete foolishness to those who don't have faith. They, they think that's foolish. How can you see death is gain? That's crazy. Not if it's the end of this mortality and then the introduction to eternal life with Christ, then it's gain. And so different destinations, different lives, two completely different camps. Now I love how he wraps this up. Because if you're a thinking person, you might be thinking, man, how do I know I'm ready? Right? There's two camps. There's not a middle camp. How do I know which camp I'm in? How do I know my life is in Christ? How do I know I'm born again? How do I know I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ? Well, he gives us assurance. Look what he says in verse 9. How does Paul know that they have this hope of salvation, this breastplate of faith and love? Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. What has he destined us for? To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he secure that? Verse 10, Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now here when he says awake or asleep, he's not talking about whether you're, which camp you're in. Now he's going back to his chapter 4 analogy. I know it's a little confusing. But now he means, by sleep, he means death. By awake, he means not dead yet. He already established that in chapter 4, if you remember when Gordon shared that with us. So he's saying whether you've already died, your loved ones that have passed already, but they, they're believers in Christ, or those of us that are still standing around and walking and doing things and they're about our careers and our families, when Jesus returns, whether we're already dead or we're still alive, we're caught up together with him and we're safe. We're in the right camp. How do we know we're in the right camp? The work that Jesus did for us. He died for us. You place your faith in that. You repent. That's it. You'll notice G Paul doesn't say anywhere in this verse, now if you're going to be ready, do A, B, and C. He doesn't talk about doing. He doesn't talk about the things that we have to do in order to know that we're saved. Instead, he talks about what Christ has already done to ensure that we are saved saved what is the difference 
The difference is that we're saved by grace alone and not a mixture of a little bit what God did and I had to finish up the rest. If God did a little bit and I had to finish up the rest, I'm going to hell, guys. I'm not in the right camp if I have to somehow supplement what Christ did on the cross. But if what Christ did on the cross is complete and it's enough, then I can have assurance. Somebody, somebody told me once, well, assurance, it's, it's arrogant to have assurance that we're saved. I said, no, it's arrogant to think that you can get assurance on your own. It's not arrogant to say that I know for sure I'm going to heaven. I know for sure I'm in the camp with Jesus Christ. That's not arrogant because the way I know I'm getting there has nothing to do with what I've done. It has nothing to do with my goodness or my righteousness or how consistent I am in the Christian walk. It has everything to do with with what Christ has done. Now, some of us, we get really bothered with destination language, right? Paul, what a punk. He sneaks it in here again, right? He puts it there in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. He's destined us for grace. He's destined us for the gospel. He's destined us to obtain the salvation that's secured to us through Jesus Christ. But if you recognize that there's nothing that we've done to do it, then there's less of a problem with the destination language. In other words, the, the fact that God has chosen me to go somewhere, then I can go, yeah, if he didn't choose me, I sure wouldn't choose him. When I stand next to somebody who disobeys God, when I stand next to somebody who's in the wrong camp, they're not ready for Christ's return. And somebody asks me, well, how come they're ready? They, how come you're ready and they're not? I, I can't say, well, because I have enough faith. I drummed it up in the bedroom one night. Come on, come on, faith. Yes, I got it. And then I placed faith in Christ. No, I had nothing. Ironically, I, I was a little kid and I saw a movie called Thief in the Night. I wouldn't necessarily recommend the theology of the movie, but if you want to use it to scare your kids, <laughs> uh, might work, you know. The back seat of the car on the way home, I just thought, I'm not ready. And I prayed. Now, why did I come to that conclusion? And tons of the other kids that watched that movie never came to that conclusion. I'm smarter. I'm better. I've got a better mom. I understand movies better. Right? No. God zapped me. He did something. So I don't take any credit for where I'm going. Jesus gets all the credit. We don't share his glory in heaven Oh, man, God, you're awesome. You did 90% and I did 10%. It's he gets 100% glory because he did 100% of everything it took for me to get there, including my faith. So that's assurance. If we are unsure of how we get to heaven, we will be unsure of which camp we're in. And if we're unsure of which camp we're in, this whole passage doesn't work for you. Look at the last verse. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Do you remember he left that off in the last verse of chapter 4? He talked about the rapture, the resurrection of the saints in verse 18 of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So when we think about Christ's return, when we think about the resurrection of the saints, it's supposed to be encouraging to us. I can't think of anything more discouraging if I thought I wasn't quite sure if I'm going to be in. Because I gave my life to Christ, but I've messed up so much since then. Oh, I, I don't pray enough. Oh, I kind of love my wife, but there's a lot of times I really am unloving to my wife. I try to love my kids, but boy, I really sometimes I'm not very loving to my kids. I think I've forgiven my 
uncle for what he did to me, but sometimes in the middle of the night I feel like I haven't forgiven him at all. Where am I? Can I live soberly, or do I live in a sort of spiritual paranoia where I don't know whether I'm doomed for destruction or if he's going to come as a rescue? Is he going to be my savior or a thief in the night for me? It wouldn't work for Paul to say, here's the doctrine, be encouraged by it. It only works if you understand there's assurance in salvation. You don't have to go to sleep tonight and go, man, I hope I'm in a camp. I'm not sure if I'm in a camp. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ via repentance? Yes or no? And you look around your life and it should operate and change. You're not perfect, but you're being propelled toward Christ. You're being progressively conformed to Christ. If you say a prayer and you're like, cool, go live however you want. That prayer didn't do nothing, right? It's not about saying a prayer. It's about coming to a place where you recognize your utter sinfulness. Your complete helplessness. And that it is right for Jesus to come as a thief in the night suddenly to destroy me. It is right for him to destroy me. If I can't come to that place, I can't, I can't have a relationship with Christ. If I go, well, I, he should destroy other people, but not really me. I mean, I'm just kind of coming to church. No. It's coming to a place where you recognize you've done nothing to earn it. Jesus has done everything to earn it. You deserve death, but he took it for you, and you place your faith there in Christ, that the object of your faith is Christ himself, and not in your faith in Christ, not in what you can do for Christ, not in what you could drum up for Christ. Your object of your faith is Christ, his person and his work on your behalf. If that's your faith, then you have full assurance, brother and sisters. You, you have full assurance because it's not what we do. And if we have that assurance, then the end of the world, the apocalypse, the man on the horse with the tattoos, the locusts eating everything up, not scary. It's, it's sobering. It's scary for others. And there should be something in us that wants to help get other people ready for that so that he doesn't fall upon them in destruction but instead he would come as a rescuer for them. That's why we share the gospel. Because we don't just keep it as a secret. Ha ha, I'm ready, you're not. Ha. You know? We want them to be ready. We proclaim the gospel as we, much as we can. And we hope that God zaps them like he zapped us. And we pray toward that end. So then, this could serve as an encouragement. Verse 18 of chapter 4. Encourage one another with these words. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so when we anticipate Christ's return, it should be a comfort to us. This should be a doctrine that we encourage one another with. Sadly, the churches, especially in recent generations in America, the doctrine of Christ's return has become so muddled with when. There's a tribulation and then there's a rapture and then there's this. Nope, there's a there's a rapture and then a tribulation and then a millennial reign. Oh, there's a portion of the tribulation and then there's a rapture and then there's another portion of the tribulation. And then we got all kinds of charts folding out of our Bibles all over YouTube with timelines and charts and, you know, the animals represent these countries and the locusts are helicopters and it's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We're so confused. We don't even want to read Revelation anymore. It's the last place we would do a devotional in. 
We have all these bits of conflicting information in our heads because of all these teachers that are so concerned with when and not how. Read Revelation by taking off the when glasses and putting on the how glasses. And the ultimate question is, are you ready for how he's going to come? Is he going to come as a thief to you? Or is he going to come as a rescuer? Is he going to come to bring you to himself? Or is he going to come to smash you down for your rebellion against him? It's one or the other. So one person reads a book like Revelation or portions of Daniel, let's say, and it is just scary. Good, I hope that that fear prompts them like it prompted me toward the gospel. But others of us, those of us that are in the right camp, we read those and it should be encouragement that God doesn't let wickedness get away with wickedness, that he wraps things up in his time and in his way, and that when he wraps things up, he's not going to destroy us, that instead it's a rescue mission for us. He pulls us out so that he can wreak destruction on wickedness and then establish his reign. That is an awesome doctrine. That is an awesome doctrine that we should encourage one another with. So let's read the bad news. Let's talk about how bad the candidates are, right? Let's talk about how the state of America and how bad things are. We can talk about that, but we don't talk about it like if America is our hope. We talk about it like Christ is our hope, and we do what we can now in the meantime, but we know that he's going to come and wrap everything up, and we long for it. While we're waiting, we proclaim the gospel to others, and we encourage one another about his return. The thing that's got you sick, that'll be gone. The job that's got you up and down, gone. The worry about where money is going to come from, gone. The disease that you inherited from your broken parents, gone. The struggle with sin and messing up and then doing better, then messing up and then doing better. The struggle, gone. Because we'll be perfect with whole bodies, whole spirits, and at total peace with Christ. Not a thief to us, but a Savior.